We began looking at the book of Acts, and we said this book is about God at work. But we also heard Jesus commissioning his followers last week. He told them they had a job to do. They were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But even as Jesus gave them a mission, he made it clear that they didn't have the ability to carry it out. They needed power from God. So even as they worked, it would really be God at work. Jesus promised that God's power would come to them in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he told them to wait in Jerusalem until that gift arrived from God. Jesus made it very clear at the very opening of this book that the church is a dependent church. It's dependent on a power from outside of itself. And our passage last time ended with Jesus returning to heaven. We're going to pick up this morning at chapter 1, verse 12, just after the disciples have seen Jesus ascend to heaven in a cloud. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1092. And I'll read from chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. 
We could call this passage basics for the dependent church. This snapshot shows us what it looks like to be dependent on God's power. The church shows its dependence by being united and devoted in prayer, by looking to Scripture for understanding and guidance, and by submitting itself to God's authority. Now, it's true that the Holy Spirit has not yet been given at this point. And yes, the church's situation will be different when the Holy Spirit comes. That will be in chapter 2. At that point, the church will begin its mission. But the end of chapter 2 shows that the church with the Spirit has the same character traits that we find here. The Spirit-filled church is still equally a dependent church. The Spirit-filled church is still incapable apart from God's power. The church will never outgrow its dependence. And so the character traits that we find here need to stay central for the church. First of all, the church shows its dependence by being united and devoted in prayer. Remember, Jesus has just left them to return to heaven. His last command was to wait in Jerusalem. And here we find a church that's determined to be obedient. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. It's important to be aware most of these followers of Jesus were not from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. That's roughly 75 miles north of Jerusalem. And they had been traveling around with Jesus, but Jerusalem is not home for them. So waiting in Jerusalem is a definite decision to be obedient. In verse 13, Luke lists the original disciples, who are now 11 instead of 12, because Judas Iscariot has gone. We'll hear more about him in a few moments. There were two disciples called Judas. The Judas in verse 13 is the other one, Judas, son of James. In any case, the group is actually larger than the original disciples. Verse 14 also mentions female disciples, including Jesus' mother, and also his brothers. His brothers had not believed in him during his earthly ministry, but they've been convinced by his resurrection, and now they're among his followers. Verse 15 mentions that all told there were about 120 in the group. And the key information in this section comes at the beginning of verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer. The church shows its dependence by being united and devoted in prayer. The end of chapter 2 will tell us the same thing. As I've mentioned, the arrival of the Holy Spirit does not change this. The Spirit-filled church is not somehow beyond the need for prayer. Prayer can be described in a lot of ways. It's certainly right to call it spiritual warfare. But at its heart, prayer is an expression of dependence on God. 
It's a declaration that we can't thrive, and in fact, we can't even survive on our own. There are 28 chapters in Acts, and prayer is mentioned 31 times. Prayer was a core priority for the early church. It must always be a priority for the church. And maybe you hear that and you think, yes, and our church has a prayer meeting. So we're covered on that one. Actually, I don't think we are covered. Look again at verse 14. They all joined together in prayer. Not just the 11, not just the leaders, not just those who had the time for it, not just those who were into it, or those who saw it as their ministry. It was all of them, together. And that is not true of us as a church. If uniting together in prayer is a sign of a dependent church, then we are not a dependent church. We are apparently a church that feels we're getting along just fine without prayer. Or at the very least, we feel those who do go to the prayer meeting have got it covered for us as a church. It could be that as I'm saying this, some of you are feeling a little superior. Maybe you're thinking, yes, it's a serious issue. I'm glad he's up there setting them all straight. I'm happy to say I'm always there at the prayer meeting. But do you pray when you're there? Of those who come to the prayer meeting, a good number never do pray. And if you don't come to pray, why on earth do you come? Is it to socialize afterwards? When verse 14 says they all joined together, it doesn't just mean they were all in the room together. It means they all joined in. I know that some of us feel we're not great with words, but do you think that all of this group prayed like Spurgeon? I doubt it. And in any case, we're not called to pray like Spurgeon. We're never told that God expects prayers that are great works of oratory. Just pray like yourself to God. And if you come from a background where women are discouraged from praying, then allow Scripture to overrule your background. Verse 14 says the women were part of this united prayer. Prayer is work. I doubt that public prayer is ever going to feel easy for any of us. It can be uplifting, but it is tiring. Let's accept the fact that it's hard and determine to do it anyway. I think part of the reason we can struggle with prayer meetings is because we have wrong expectations. We shouldn't go expecting to receive. We should go ready to contribute. And then we may well receive a whole lot. Now, I know that we have lots of prayer in our home groups. And I have no doubt that you all pray privately at home. 
but we have one chance a month to meet all together for prayer. That's only 12 times a year. I would encourage you to make it a personal priority on your calendar. Mark the first Thursday of every month. If you have children, plan to divide it with your spouse. Come to six each. If the prayer meeting hasn't been on your radar screen up to this point, then give it some serious thought. Don't just come once or twice because I've made you feel guilty. Consider what Scripture is showing us. Make it part of your monthly routine. Verse 14 says the church joined together constantly. That doesn't mean they never took a break to eat or to sleep. It means they persevered in this. They made it a priority. And they stuck with it. So let's aim to make the prayer meeting outgrow the fellowship hall. The New Testament doesn't say the church needs a Sunday school or a youth group or a music group. It tells us we need to be together in prayer. That is a priority. And if those other things have made you too busy to come to a prayer meeting once a month, then maybe we as a church need to stop doing some of those other things. Maybe we've become much too self-sufficient as a church. Well, what else is basic for the dependent church? Verses 15 to 22 tell us the church shows its dependence by looking to Scripture for understanding and guidance. We've already mentioned that the original group of 12 disciples is now 11. And it's worth realizing what a big issue that was. Maybe Judas had been almost forgotten in the upheaval of Jesus' crucifixion and then the excitement of his resurrection and his appearances to them. But now that these disciples have space and time to think, there is no doubt that the Judas issue would have been a big focus of attention. This was a man most of them had known for at least three years. Three years of intense partnership. They must have known him very, very well. These disciples spent long hours talking as they walked from place to place with Jesus. Eating together, lodging together, feeding the 5,000 together. They all thought they knew Judas well. They thought that he shared the same purpose. They thought that Jesus was as precious to Judas as he was to them. But he'd gone behind all their backs and arranged to betray Jesus. He'd followed it through too. He'd handed him over to be crucified. Jesus died because of the treachery of one of their closest friends. And no doubt they were all wondering, how could this happen? What does it mean? How can we make sense of it? Well, Peter stands up to show some leadership here. And he does it by turning their attention to Scripture. Look down to verse 15. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. The church here is faced with a situation it cannot understand. And Jesus is not around for them to ask anymore. So the church turns to its one reliable source of understanding. Scripture. Written by man under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. These first believers were Jews. They knew the Old Testament. And before he left them, Jesus taught them how to read the Old Testament. It was not only a record of their past history. It was that, but Jesus taught them to see it as a living book that could make sense of their present situation. In verse 16, Peter says, Judas' death was the fulfillment of something predicted by the Holy Spirit through David long, long before. And before he gives us the rest of what Peter said, Luke himself adds a little note for us. In verses 18 and 19, he explains what happened to Judas. Although Judas had tried to return the money that he earned for betraying Jesus, the money was eventually used to buy a field. And Matthew's gospel tells us that he hanged himself. Presumably that was the cause of what Luke tells us here. His body swelled and ultimately it burst open. And Judas' death became the talk of the city of Jerusalem. Then in verse 20, now that he's sure we know what happened to Judas, Luke gives us the scripture Peter quoted to explain it. It's Psalm 69, verse 25. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Now we have to ask, did David have Judas in mind when he wrote that? Almost certainly not. But he did have in mind the enemies of God. And that's the point. These believers are not to think that Judas' defection was disastrous. They're not to imagine that it took God by surprise or that God can't keep hold of his own. Now, the fact is, Judas turned out to be one of God's enemies. For his own purposes, God had allowed Judas to be where he was and to do what he did. But in the end, what happened to Judas was a case of God's judgment falling on an enemy of God. Down in verse 25, the disciples mention that Judas went where he belongs. They mean hell. He may have appeared for a time to be one of the disciples, but in the end, he showed his true colors. Judas did what his heart really wanted to do. And the application here is this. 
When the church was faced with a situation they couldn't understand, they turned to Scripture for understanding. And that is a basic characteristic of the dependent church in every era. You and I live and work in a confusing world. We see people defying God and yet apparently prospering. We see God's people persecuted in many places and marginalized in many other places. We see God's people sometimes overwhelmed by trials. Sometimes we see a professing Christian dive headlong into sin. Maybe we see another apparently working to destroy the church from the inside. Or maybe we see a faithful and valued member of the church ending up moving on somewhere else to serve God. How do we begin to make sense of all these things? Where do we look for understanding? It has to be the living book that God has given us. Only a self-sufficient man or woman would trust themselves to figure it all out. Now certainly the Bible is not to be treated like it's an answer book. God didn't give us a topical index that says, turn to this chapter and verse to understand this problem. Now I know some Bibles do have sections like that, and those things can be helpful. We can and we should look for answers to specific questions. But our general approach to the Bible shouldn't be like our approach to Google, where we type in a question and up pops an answer. We're to read it all, asking God to help us apply all that we read, to show us how God's words and actions in the past shed light on our situation today, because they do. Now, we have to do that carefully, but we can do it confidently. The Apostle Paul explained it like this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's pretty comprehensive. And it's a truth that the church has understood from its very earliest days. By ourselves, we don't have what it takes to make sense of life and of the world around us. We're dependent on God for that. And we show our dependence by making God's Word central in our lives and in our church life. We don't just take the approach that a verse a day will keep the devil away. That's not really dependence. That's more like superstition. A true sense of our dependence causes us to give serious attention to Scripture. John Stott has said that if Peter's first quotation from the Psalms helped to explain what had happened with Judas, his second quotation guided them in what they should do about it. At the end of verse 20, now Peter is quoting from Psalm 109, verse 8, may another take his place of leadership. Peter has turned to Scripture for understanding of the situation 
And now he turns to it for guidance in the situation. Look at verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Why does Judas need to be replaced? What's so important about having 12 apostles instead of 11? In fact, why focus on the 11 or 12 when there are about 120 followers of Jesus at this point? Well, it's helpful to remember something Jesus told them back in Luke's gospel. He said to the 12, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus promised that the original group of disciples would have special leadership responsibility in his kingdom both his growing kingdom on earth and his eternal kingdom in the new heaven and earth. Now, as the book of Acts unfolds, it will be clear that the kingdom includes more than just Jews. But the point is, the original twelve represent both a connection with the past, the twelve tribes of Israel, and also they represent the foundation for the future. Their eyewitness testimony is going to be foundational for the church. If the twelve tribes of Israel represented the whole Old Testament people of God, the twelve disciples represent the future people of God. That group of twelve is like a promise of what God is going to do. And so, as they reflect on Scripture, these early believers are guided to put someone in the place of Judas, since he turned out to be not among the people of God. They decide that the replacement had to have seen and heard all the same things as Judas, but the replacement had to be a genuine believer in Jesus. If it's true that we need to look to Scripture in order to understand life in this world, It's equally true that we need to turn there for guidance in our decisions and our actions. There are a thousand different voices around us telling us what's good for us, what we need, how we should look and think and solve our problems. A thousand voices, and they're all loud. They know how to get our attention. God's Word is not shouting at us from posters or the radio or the internet. But God's Word is the source of guidance that we need. Without it, we're just like a bottle floating on the sea, just bobbing around with every wind and wave that comes along. As individuals and as a church, we show our dependence by immersing ourselves in God's Word. There's one more thing to notice here. 
The church shows its dependence by submitting itself to God's authority. Verse 23. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. I said last week that we're not meant to slavishly copy everything the early church did. And we find a clear example of that here. The message here is not that we should start choosing our church officers by casting lots. Or that we should make any of our decisions that way. There were different ways of casting lots. In this case, it probably involved putting names on stones, then shaking them in a bag and drawing one out. That was a common practice in the Old Testament. But it's significant that after the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, the church doesn't use lots again. And so the key point here is not the lots. It's the attitude of the church. They looked to Scripture for understanding and for guidance. And they came up with two men who fit the external qualifications. They were eyewitnesses. And then the church submitted itself to God's authority. Look again at their prayer in verse 24. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. In other words, we have selected these two men as carefully as we can. But we depend on you, Lord. Only you see the heart. Only you know who's best for the position. We submit to your authority. So it's clear, even as they cast lots, the church were not relying on luck. They were showing their dependence on God. And we do the same when we as elders try to propose qualified people for church office. And then we ask the church body to vote. We're trusting God to work through the prayerful decisions of his spirit-filled people. Leaders who are determined to make and to push through every decision themselves are not really submitting to God's authority. But the application here is much, much wider than just choosing leaders or making other big church decisions. We've spoken about being united and devoted in prayer and looking to Scripture for understanding and guidance. But all of that amounts to nothing if our hearts are not submitted to God's authority. It's possible to do plenty of praying and plenty of Bible reading and yet still make ourselves the final source of authority. It can be quite a subtle thing. We love it when God answers prayer, so long as it's the answer we want. Otherwise, we're not listening. We love the parts of Scripture that back up our opinions. 
But if Scripture dares to contradict our opinions, we'll turn the page and move on. Have you ever had that experience? You read something and you think, my life would look a bit different if I took this passage seriously. I think I'll turn over and read something else. The heart of dependence on God is a heart submitted to God's authority. And that submission is a daily struggle for all of us. It's so easy to pray, your will be done. It's a lot harder to really mean it. It's easy to turn to Scripture looking for comfort and guidance. It's hard to obey when Scripture challenges the path we're taking. When it tells us to set aside a certain ambition that we have or some treasure that we've set our heart on. This morning, let's individually commit to giving Scripture its rightful, central place in our lives. Let's commit ourselves to praying with the church body, not just alone at home. And let's thank God for the Holy Spirit, the one who helps us in our struggle to submit to God. Before we sing, we're going to take a moment to be quiet just where we're sitting. Let's use this as an opportunity to speak to God about what we've heard in his word. Let's just be quiet where we're sitting.